0: Welcome to The Forecasting Impact, a podcast supported by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings you the most inspiring people to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Forecasting Impact. I'm Maddie, and I'm so excited uh, to announce that we have a special co-host and a special guest for today. My co-host is Elena Deschamps.
1: Yes, I'm coming to you from Olympia, Washington, and I'm the director of a state agency called the Washington State Caseload Forecast Council. We produce forecasts that drive the demand for state services, such as public education, public assistance, low-income health care, the criminal justice system, and other human services. And these forecasts that we produce uh, get used in the Washington state budgeting process.
0: Awesome. And our special guest, you know, I always look around to find the best experts in forecasting across the world so they can uh, share their expertise and their vision with us. Uh, so our special guest today is uh, Professor Gloria Gonzalez-Rivera. Professor Gloria Gonzalez-Rivera is a, a professor of economics at the University of California, Riverside. She received her PhD from the University of California, San Diego, where she wrote her dissertation under the supervision of 2003 novel, Lauriti Professor Robert Engel. Her research focuses on the development of econometric and forecasting methodology with applications to financial markets, volatility of forecasting, risk management, and agricultural markets. She has also been a consultant for the hedge fund industry and the government-sponsored enterprises in topics such as mortgage securitization, subordinated debt, and risk management. She is a former president of the International Institute of Forecasters and associate editor of the International Journal of Forecasting. She has also written a textbook, Forecasting for Economics and Business. Thank you so much, Gloria, for coming to our podcast today. Great to be here with you too. It's our pleasure. So there's a lot that we want to go through. So I'm going to take off our conversation. Um, I'm sure our audiences want to know your story. Uh, You have accomplished a lot of great things in your career. I would like to know uh, how did you start uh, your career? Maybe you can go back to early days, your educations, and all the way up until now.
2: Yeah, sure. Let's start from my university days. In high school, I was uh, very good at math, and I always enjoyed playing with uh, data and models, and uh, I was doing a lot of puzzles. I don't know why, but I mean, this is what you do in high school. And then I was deciding uh, what to do at the university level, and I wanted to do math. uh, And then my family intervened and said, math, what are you going to do with math? go towards a more practical major. I said, well, it has to be something with math. So I end up in economics because uh, I'm coming from Spain. And in Spain, you choose your major from day one. It's not that you go to a general education and then two years after uh, you are in college, you, you decide what to do. So I have to enter directly into economics. And I really enjoyed because economics was the best of two worlds in the sense that it provides a very formal, rigorous approach to understanding human behavior. But at the same time, you have human behavior stories. So you combine uh, narratives together with uh, models and data. So for me, it was a a great time. And at the very end, the last two years of the college career, you have to specialize in a subfield. And I was looking around and people were saying the most difficult field in economics is economic theory. And I say, okay, well, uh, let's do economic theory, because if I do the most difficult field, then I would do the easiest anytime I want. Right. So I went into economic theory and. And I loved it. And again, because it was a very logical process, the models were so consistent, so beautiful. But of course, I was not wondering, is this reality? For me, they were models, right? So I was maximizing utility, maximizing profits, or I was understanding about Keynesian economics. But being young, uh, I think I was missing a little bit of connection with the real world. And the paradox of my life is that during this college career, uh, my exposure to econometrics was minimal, uh, partly because we didn't have all this computer technology at the time. I'm talking about late 70s, beginning of the 80s. So we don't have all this computer revolution. So my exposure to econometrics was really very minimal. I think uh, we use a textbook, uh, Johnston. Uh, from uh, University of Michigan. It was the textbook and it was all about uh, theory and deriving estimators and looking at the consistency and the synthetic normality. So, but all at the very theoretical. With this background, I finished my college career and the question was what, what do I do with this? And I explored several uh, doctoral programs in Madrid, uh, in the Universidad Complutense and Universidad Autónoma de Madrid. And they were not really developed programs. They they were in existence, but there was no a full structure of a PhD program. And I was so lucky that I had a mentor who had spent several years in the United States, uh, Professor Juan Herrera. And then he really told me, hey, why don't you apply for a Fulbrighter scholarship and try to look into the American universities? And that's what I did. I didn't think much about it. Uh, I said, it sounds good to me. And then uh, the question is, where, where am I going? And I said, well, if you want to do uh, economic theory because that was my specialty. try to look into California and I was looking at several universities. And I ended up at the University of California, San Diego. I was all ready to do economic theory, I had a bent for applying micro-theory, so industrial organization is what I was aiming for. And after the first two years in which the program is very structured, you do your macro, micro, and economic discourses, then I realized that the micro people, uh, the micro faculty were phenomenal. They were uh, really creative. I found that it was very difficult to do, uh, do micro-theory at that level. But not only that, the vibe that I was getting when I was at San Diego is that econometrics was the thing to do. And it was Professor Clive Granger, Professor Robert Engel, and Professor Hal White. What is the chance of having three geniuses at the same time in the same university? And I say, Gloria, you must be silly. If you don't do econometrics, when when are you having this historical opportunity? And of course, I'm telling you these stories now with in retrospect, right? When you look at your life and you say, OK, that happened 25 years ago. When you are young and you are in the middle of something, you don't really understand the historical moment in which you are because you are living through this historical moment. And then, of course, uh, in hindsight, I think I was really fortunate that I end up in that place with a different goal. But I was flexible enough to maneuver and said, no, no, uh, the thing to do here in San Diego is econometrics. I was even more fortunate because when I decided to do econometrics, I said, I have to ask, okay, w- what do I like? I like time series. So then within time series, what do you like? So, well, I think I like to play with the data and I move from a very... A structure, logical structures of models in economic theory to the dirty world of data and models that, that you, you need to adjust to the reality of what you are trying to model. So it was a real shift in the way of thinking from the economic theory to econometrics and in particular to time series, that is what I wanted to do. And that has been the trajectory since the time that I decided to do economics to the end uh, in which I graduated with a thesis in a time series under the supervision of uh, Professor Robert Engel. At that time, neither Granger nor Engel were Nobel laureates. So when the, the prize came in 2003, I said, can't you be more lucky? I mean, yeah. I mean <laughs> yes. uh, I, so, so intellectually, it was a very rewarding experience. And serendipity. Uh, So all of us have these random shocks in our lives and you have to do the best you can with the things that come to you without knowing where are you going, basically.
1: So it was just wonderful to hear about the time you got to work with Clive Granger and Robert Engel. And it made me think back to something that's so important for us as forecasters is the International Symposium on Forecasting, as well as the International Institute on Forecasters, which I'm sure we'll spend some time talking about today and your important role as a leader. Um, But back in 2006, I was at the ISF conference and uh, Robert Engel was there. And I was thinking back to how important the ISF has been to our forecasting community. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about maybe some of your favorite ISFs or like what that conference means to you and to the forecasting community.
2: Well, personally, for me, the ISF was the beginning of my relationship with ISF and IIF. So my first uh, meeting was in Santander, I don't recall exactly the year, but Santander had two meetings. So in the very first one, I remember that I sent three papers. The organizer at that time was Antonio Garcia Ferrer, who was also president of AIF. I said, well, we understand that you are doing many things, but uh, we are getting uh, one paper per per presenter. And it was only one paper. And from that meeting on, I've been a regular attendee of ISF. And then, of course, I I got involved with uh, the journal and and the institute. And for me personally, uh, it has been a great experience. And I'm really committed to the mission of the institute. And I think now... After so many years, uh, I have the obligation uh, to bring uh, new generations to the Institute and to the ISF because it was such a plus in my professional career. So if it has been for me, I imagine that it has been for many people. And what we are doing in the Institute, I mean, we really, really want to foster a climate of inclusion for the young crowd, for those of you who are finishing up a PhD and you think that forecasting is something that you want to do, we want to offer as many resources as we can and we want you to be a member of the institute because it's, it's something that is going to help your professional career and it's going to help you to grow academically or intellectually in the field of forecasting.
0: Uh, we have in IAEF, um, forecasters, it's really inspiring for us. As a female leader in International Institute of Forecasters, uh, we want to get a bit of your insights on women in forecasting. We had the International Women's Day last week, and uh, we want to get your insights on that. How uh, has it been involved during the last decade or so, and uh, what do you see in the future in that?
2: Well, uh, anytime that we'll talk about women and certain professions, this is a kind of a loaded question, right? Because I would like to reach a time in which Uh, There is no women or men. I mean, there are just professionals in forecasting. So so the fact that we are talking about women in forecasting is because we are recognizing that probably there is a problem. And the problem is always numbers. So then uh, why we are not more? I think we should be more women in forecasting than we are uh, now. But then we have to understand the, uh, the pipes. I mean, what brings women into forecasting. You Before you are in forecasting, you are making career choices all along, right? So I, as I was explaining in my own personal development, you are making choices that just by the nature of the choice, every time that you make a choice becomes narrow and narrow and narrow. So, so that how do you end up in forecasting? So the very first question that we have to ask ourselves is what is the climate that we create for women and men uh, when they are at the college level choosing what kind of career you want to have. And it's not that we know exactly what we want to be, because as I, as I said, uh, we are at the mercy of these random shocks in our lives. But when you are making the first choice is, what do I think that I enjoy? So then you have to put yourself in, am I a person who likes to read numbers or to write narratives? So then looking at the pipes, the pipes are either a college career in a statistics or data science or economics, econometrics or applied math. So for me, this is the beginning. If we don't have numbers, then it's very difficult to have numbers at the end when the choice is forecasting, right? That is much narrower. So the question is, how do we bring women to these fields that at least in United States, and I don't think that is the same in the world, but at least in United States, the number of women in these technical fields is very small. So if the beginning, you have a small proportion of women choosing to do math or statistics or some kind of engineering, Then, of course, you are going to have many less women at the very end, right, because the initial conditions are so poor. So what I want to say is that for the women that they are now in forecasting, I think we have a tremendous responsibility uh, to look at the beginning of our careers and to say, how do we create incentives for women to jump into this type of college specialties? At least in the United States, because I know that in other parts of the world, this is much less of a problem. So right now, because I have more administrative responsibilities, part of my work is to look at the diversity of women within my fields. And what I know very well is economics and econometrics. And when you look at economics... Uh, and you look at the PhD programs, the incoming students in the United States is about one-third of women in the PhD programs. So it's not a big number because you say, okay, well, why not 50%, (laughs) right? Uh, But all right, Uh, so about one-third, one-third coming into the PhD program. So then you look at the pipeline and say, how many women, when they finish the PhD, they go for an academic career? So the last figures that I look at, I'm talking about academia. I mean, industry has a different problem, but in academia, at the level of assistant professor, we have from the hiring pool one third, about 32 to thirty-three percent, are assistant professors. So now, how do you go from there? to make a career. So the numbers have been improving uh, and this is good news. But when you look at the academic career and you say, okay, now let me look at full professors who are female in American economics departments that have a PhD program. So the numbers become very thin because now when you look at the pool of of full professors, uh, we are only about 13 or 14%, the latest figures. So the number is is small. So what it means is that our responsibility is much, much, much larger on incentivating uh, women to jump into economics. And because we're talking about forecasting, at least you have to do econometrics if, if you want really later on to specialize in forecasting. The way that I see is that we are doing a lot of work. And I think the Institute, if you look at the composition of the participants, either at the board level or at the number of presenters in the ISFs, you see a considerably amount of women. But we have to do more. For us women who are, in my case, as a full professor and now as an administrator, it's part of my professional responsibility uh, to make a field, at least that women can consider to jump into. So I don't want to talk about women in forecasting in particular, but I want and, and really determined to open these pipes, such as when you make a choice, it's an informed choice. You have a set that is much wider than the set that I had, when I was an 18 or 19-year-old uh, thinking about my college career. And I think uh, whatever years we have left in a profession, substantial amount of time should be spent on making our profession a welcome ground for women. And in a few years, I hope that uh, we don't have the question, what is going on with women forecasting? I can say, no, what is the profession doing in forecasting, right? So then we talk about professionals, not just the split between men
1: and women. Gloria, your words are so inspiring. And when I think back to my childhood, I was scared to death of mathematics. I wanted to be <laughs> a piano teacher. And somehow here I am, I'm a forecaster and I've been doing forecasting for 25 years. And and part of, again, the IIF was a really important institution for to get me involved. And so I thought I might ask, um, you know, now, now I'm actually on the board of the IIF board of directors. And I th- I think another place where you played such a significant role in terms of leadership is being a past president. And I was thinking maybe what advice do you have? Like that role is so challenging and demanding and yet very rewarding. What advice do you have for people who then wanna take that next step and be a leader in that kind of way in forecasting?
2: Well, my advice all along has been to say yes. Do everything that comes your way because you always have time to say no later on, right? So then uh, uh, my approach is that when an opportunity presents to you, I ask myself two questions. And one question is, what can I learn in this new opportunity and what I can contribute? So then it's beneficial to me because I'm learning, but I'm also committed to bring a benefit to the community that I engage with. And that was my attitude when the opportunity came. So I was, again, very fortunate to be in a board uh, when I was director in which there were several women at that time. And the directors were very receptive to diversify the board. So it was not only diversification across countries and across disciplines, but also across gender. Uh, We need different voices. And then... The former two presidents, Mosen Hammoudia and Antonio García Ferrer, they were real advocates for this, this type of diversity. So when the opportunity was presented to me, and I said, why not? I mean, uh, I said, am I running into any risk? I said, no, I mean, this is, this is a safe proposition. And within a group of directors who really want diversification at the board level, right? So it was a riskless decision. I said, when do you have an opportunity in which you say something and there is no risk one way or the other? So so then this is my first advice. If the opportunity presents, be positive and say yes. And then to realize that when you say yes, you are not alone because uh, to be president of the institute, it means very little. And what I mean, it means very little because you have all these directors that they are collaborating. So the only thing that I have to do is to keep the timing and the agenda and, and to make sure that when we say that we do this, we do this, right? So, so obviously I brought my own project to the Institute, but the richness of the directors in the board, this is the treasure of the Institute. It's not one man or one woman show. It's a bunch of individuals committed to the Institute to make it better over the years to make it more more accessible to all countries, all young and all, industry and academia. And and when you see that there is so much to work for, you are thinking the reward uh, is going to present by itself. I don't have to look for a reward because this is what I'm working for, right? So in that sense, be positive, uh, say yes. And when things don't come your way, ask for help because I think at the moment we are 12 directors so that would be my advice there is no room to say no when you are building community that's
0: what i would say yeah i love that answer say yes <laughs> to the opportunities and if you want to change your mind you can change your mind later on but later but on don't. exactly that's how you you got the chance to work under the supervision of a Nobel laureate so you, so you said yes to the opportunity and you work under uh, his supervision. Yeah, that's great to know. I like your thoughts on on the women in forecasting and the diversity and um, how you uh, looked at this problem from the fundamental perspective. Like we we need to go back to the STEM and to the educations in perhaps high school and choosing a degree that can be, and having that uh, confidence that we can do it. And uh, this is something that is actually very rewarding if we choose to go in that direction.
1: I was just thinking how your career has really exemplified a goal that we have in the forecasting community, which is to bridge the gap, as they say, between the academic and the practitioner. And I'm just curious in general what type of advice you have for people in that arena.
2: Well, I have to say that when I was president of the institute, one of the lines that we're working at the board is how to increase the practitioner crowd uh, in the international simulation forecasting. And I have to say that in the last editions, if, if you have been attending ISF, you see that the number of practitioners has increased exponentially. And and in fact, in the board now, uh, I think we are probably 50-50 between practitioners and academics, right? Mm -hmm. So so what I would say is that uh, probably we have to be even more visible than we are within a diversity of industries and and to keep on working on making uh, the symposium as the place to be if you are in industry, And and I think the current president, George, uh, uh, is very much vested on pushing this idea that we need practitioners attending the board. Uh, Because besides bringing diversity to this symposium, it opens also possibilities of interacting with uh, sectors that probably we know very little about. But this is the opening door to understand where are the needs of of the industry. And it creates this kind of, symbiotic relation between what we do as uh, academicians, researchers, the needs of the industry. And I have to tell you, I mean, my own experience when I was working for the government sponsored enterprises, the models that we develop over there later on in my, in my academic career, they were also very useful. And actually one of my last pieces that I finished just recently, It has to do with stress testing in a macroeconomic context. So this is an example where ideas that were created many years back, now they are coming to help my research agenda. So it's only to the interest of all of us, academics and practitioners, to talk to each other. And I think the symposium and our institute is really the ideal place to bring these collaborations to fruition.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's been really great over the years to see more practitioners joining the ISF and the IIF, and to see that collaboration as it grows. It's really exciting.
0: Yeah, indeed. That's that's good to see. Talking about the practitioners and academics and their collaboration, we are in a COVID era. Uh, we haven't got out of it yet. What are you doing these days? Do you any research in COVID for related to COVID era? And you know, where do you stand on that?
2: Yeah, this is a very good question, because at the beginning of of the lockdown, we are always of two brains, right? Uh, One brain will say, oh, this is a great opportunity, I'm going to write so many papers, I'm home, no interruption, no commuting, no nothing. And then you say, okay, wait a minute, so many papers, but the historical moment, you need to contribute to it, right? So it's COVID. So then what can we do for COVID? I mean, certainly, The epidemiologists were doing all these predictions, and then the economists jumped into it. And I said, well, how can I contribute uh, with my expertise to make COVID relevant to my research? Or just the opposite, my research relevant to COVID, that's what I would say. And this last piece that I just mentioned is precisely a response to how policymakers can prepare for these rare events. And when we talk about rare events or extreme events, are events with a small probability of occurrence, but when they happen, they can bring catastrophic losses. And this is COVID. Uh, There was a probability that now in retrospect, it was not that small because we had already people saying, we may have a pandemic, so are we prepared for it? But we were not listening, right? So the COVID event is one of these rare events that... Because of lack of forecasting, we are really uh, facing these losses, right? And in some countries more than in others. So this last research uh, that I've been doing with my co-author, Esther Ruiz, and with Vladimir Rodriguez in Mexico, what we are doing is bringing an index that looks at how bad uh, GDP can do if we were to be hit by one of these extreme events. In other words, it's again building a stressful scenario and to know that GDP growth can be of a certain magnitude. So the research that I've been doing in this last month is to assess the consequence of a rare event in the economy. And we were looking at data of United States. Uh, so, so then what we said is, if at the end of 2019, if we had the model that we are proposing now, we could have seen very clearly that if we had the bad luck of having COVID or any other rare event, our GDP growth can really drop 30% at the annual rate. This number came in our data, came in what we were proposing. So we have created this index that we call it growth in a stress and we want this index to be a tool uh, for policymakers to be able to follow how things can develop in the case that the economy is hit by one of these extreme and rare events. So this is our contribution uh, to these uh, COVID uh, times, creating tools. Uh, this is a risk tool, a risk management tool that the policymaker can have in the risk And to construct the index in a very very systematic way, such as you can see from this quarter to the next, what can happen? It's not... I'm not saying that is going to happen, but I'm saying if we were to have one of these rare events, we have to be ready to face an economy in which growth is going to go down the tube. How much? It's not the same to say that growth is going to go 10 percent down or it's going to go 30 percent down. Right. So this is our uh, contribution in these times. I hope that the tool is uh, successful and and it's well accepted, and you know, now we enter into the dynamics of, is it gonna be published? Where is it gonna go? So we are very happy with the, the results. I, I, we finished uh, and it's already sent out. We will present it in, in several venues this coming summer, and we will see. But this is our contribution to the COVID times.
0: That's a nice contribution. You know, rare events happen. But what makes them really difficult to predict and also to predict their consequences is lack of data and lack of information. And I think having such a tool in our toolbox is very important and that can help for better risk management and for better decision making. So I think that's a nice contribution. So I want to move our conversation to another contribution that you have had, and that's about your book, Forecasting for Economics and Business. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and and the process and what's it about?
2: Yeah, the book came as filling a a need. Uh, In the United States, the students in economics, they have very little exposure to time series. I mean, they have exposure to econometrics. It's mainly cross-sectional econometrics, what we do. And then... I proposed to my faculty here that we can bring forecasting to the undergrad, that we don't, they don't have to wait to do a master's or a PhD in order to know about forecasting. And um, I, I proposed a course, the course was approved. And then the typical thing, uh, how do I do this? I say, I have my own way. So I was really uh, writing notes for the students, the way that I explain time series. So, the beginning is always time series for me. And then from time series, I jumped to the uses of time series that is forecasting. And little by little, uh, one year after the other, the, the notes were piling up. And I said, well, I think I have to put all these pile of notes in a more a formal structured way. And then the textbook uh, came up. And uh, it's the textbook that I use uh, in econ. Uh, it has been quite successful among economics departments. And I got a a lot of feedback from instructors. And what I've been told is that what they like the most is the third part of the book. I said, but in order to reach the third part of the book, you have to go through the first and through the second. So so the third part of the book is really the treatment of of volatility and uh, risk measures at the very undergraduate level. Because these topics, uh, they come once you go into postgraduate, right? So that's, I think I feel uh, proud that an undergrad in economics can finish his or her degree uh, and say, oh, I know how to model second moments. I know what, what you mean when you say risk, or I know what you mean when you say a density forecast. So, so you don't have to wait until you are more advanced in your knowledge. Uh, these are ideas that they should be part of your daily life, basically, uh, uh, if you are an economist. So why not to bring it at the undergraduate level? And I think this is what my book uh, accomplished, that beyond uh, models and, and techniques, uh, uh, then you bring concepts that people think, oh, this is too high for undergrads. And my, my view was, no, this is not too high for undergrad if you want to bring the topic within the context that an undergrad can grasp. And in that sense, uh, I think the book has accomplished uh, what I wanted to accomplish.
0: How did you manage all these things together? I'm wondering, <laughs> <laughs> writing a book, being a president in IF, and doing your research, all the consultations. How do you manage your time? You have probably, your, you know, your kids and family. and
2: <laughs> Yeah, well, my son is already uh, grown up and already uh, a researcher. So, uh, well, I have to say that. I want to bring here my woman part to this conversation, but I I have to say that I had a great husband. Uh, I I want to say he's no longer with us, so I miss him terribly. But uh, he was also an academician, and in my house, there was no division of labor. Everybody was doing everything. My son, my husband, and myself. So understanding what you want to do, understanding that you are not having a job, that you have a career, that a career is not a spring, it's a marathon, and that you have to post uh, yourself, and that you have every so often to evaluate what is important to you, and that hopefully you have a long life, then it's a matter of prioritizing, right? So at some moments, in particular for women, family becomes more important because we have a biological clock, and because We don't want to sacrifice anything just for the fact that you want to have a career in academia and you are a woman. Uh, So so then it's a matter of of having great, again, great help. And I don't want to call it help. Uh, I want to say having a great companion that is understanding what you are doing and that there will be times in which your career is more important than his and vice versa. And to be able to understand that we want to enjoy our child and that our child has to have some priority because once they grow, they don't come back for a long time. So, So then we have to take advantage of that time. So what I want to say is that it's not a matter of how much you do. It's a matter of to say, I want to use the best that I have for the best of the people that I have around me. And sometimes it's your family most of the time, but sometimes it's your students. Graduate students take a big chunk of your time. Sometimes it's your fellows, your colleagues. Sometimes it's the communities, the professional communities that you belong to. And here is the Institute and the symposium and all of the board. And and then things start falling in place. So it's not that you sit down and you say I want to accomplish so much so many things by the time that I'm 40 50 60 I say well, who knows if you're gonna be 40 50 60s right so you just do one thing at a time hope for the best have the best people around you and be engaged on what you do and things are coming by themselves that's what I would say
1: yeah I'm curious about what you're favorite forecasting books are or what your favorite forecasting <laughs> articles are or any yeah. of those kind of things on it?
2: Cool. Well, I think it's very difficult to say one, right? Because it's not that we are new in the field, but I, I always go to the classic. You know? and, and for me, it's not really a forecasting paper, but yeah, it's a paper that has created a lot of, of forecasting um, advancements, right? And this, I have to go to the 1982 paper by Engel because at that time, it was revolutionary because it was a modeling of second moments. Up to that time, we were talking a little bit about residuals square, but we didn't have a good model. And then he came with this model and it opened uh, a literature that it has probably now millions of articles. So uh, I would say that this is my favorite in the sense that it brought a lot of innovation, he brought a lot of researchers jumping into the field, and he has created uh, tools that they are in fashion 25 years later. So let me, let me choose this one, right? 1982, conditional heteroskedasticity. author uh, Robert F. Engel, published in Econometrica.
0: We're going to finish up by two quick questions. You already answered one of them. uh, What is your favorite forecasting paper? But we also ask this at at the end of each show, we ask this quick question. So Mm -hmm. the second one would be, what is your favorite forecasting method? You can answer it just by one word.
2: One word, as you can see, I'm not a person of one word. uh, I mean, what I want to say is, I don't think more important than a forecasting method is the data. Because according to the properties of the data, you choose the forecasting method. So then, as I tell my students, your method, whatever your method is, has to be better than the benchmark. And there is no better benchmark than any, a linear method. So uh, if you give me any ARIMA or any exponential smoothing, any of these uh, simple methods, and they work well, then this is my benchmark. And anything that you go beyond non-linearities, non-stationarity, all these machine learning algorithms that we have nowadays, if they don't, they don't do better than the linear method, then forget about it. So I would say two things. The data drives the method. And, and whenever you know the properties of the data and you think that you have the right method, this method has always to be much better than any linear approximation that you have.
0: Thank you so much, Gloria. It has been a great conversation and our pleasure Thank to have you. you on Forecasting Impact. And yeah. we hope to see you sometime in person again. I hope so. Uh, where Thank can you. people find more about you? Your website on, on, on University of California?
2: Yeah, the, that was website It has an email. I mean, any, any questions, I respond to all my emails. And uh, I'm always open for any kind of questions, um, advices, suggestions, projects. Yes. So and
0: thank you uh, so much. Have, you, have you back on, uh, on Forecasting Impact one day again.
2: Yeah, very nice meeting you, Omadi, uh, And see you again, Elaine. And It has been great fun uh, talking to you both.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you like this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Forecasting Impact. Ask your questions and share your thoughts with us. We appreciate you and we look forward to seeing you at our
2: next episode.